If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 26. Uh, This is a long chapter. This is our last Sunday in it. We'll be diving into the end of 26 and the first couple of verses of Matthew 27. We have a lot, a lot of ground to cover. So um, yeah, so just know that ahead of time. Uh, The title of the message this morning is The Road to Golgotha. So last week, uh, if you remember, if you were here, we learned about uh, the arrest of Jesus, the betrayal of Jesus, the disciples falling away and fleeing out of fear. And today we're going to go uh, through the, the period of time between Jesus's arrest all right up until the crucifixion. So what took place between the middle of the night, Thursday night, and Friday morning when Jesus was put on a cross? That's where we're going to be this morning. In other words, we're going to be on the road to Golgotha. Throughout our passage today, though, the the, kind of the theme or maybe the structure of how we're going to do this is we're going to look at Jesus, always a good plan. Uh, We're going to look at Jesus, but then we're going to look at those around Jesus and see and notice how they respond or how they act in light of him. So one of the main questions, one of the most important questions you could ask yourself or you could ask someone you know Uh, one of the most important questions that we have to wrestle with in this life, in this world is, what do you do with Jesus? Like, what do you do do with him? Who is he to you? What does he demand of you? How will you respond to who he is? That's what we'll be doing this morning. We have to move quickly through some sections to dwell more on others. And I've, I've prayed over the week that where we linger this morning is where the spirit wants us to stay put. So I hope you, uh, kind of dial in with me and, and pay attention. We're going to read the text. We're going to read the whole text. I think that's most important. The Spirit uses the Word of God to illuminate our hearts and minds to know God in ways that we sometimes don't expect. So we want to be submissive to His leadership. So let's pray first, and then we'll read, and then we'll move. All right, so let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we are grateful that this morning we get to gather around uh, these tables and open up your Word and hear you speak. And Lord, I'm, I'm grateful that we have for us recorded uh, this movement of Jesus from his arrest in the garden to his crucifixion. Because in this tragic, horrendous, difficult, sometimes even confusing set of passages, uh, we find grace where we need to find grace. We find conviction where we need to be convicted. And Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you might open our eyes to see the Lord Jesus as he is. So Lord, help me to teach this text with power and with confidence, with clarity. Help these students and these leaders to to listen with an attentive ear and with a heart that's soft towards the good news of the gospel. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So find with me, Matthew 26. We're going to start in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus 
remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the priest tore, the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So our first scene this morning is Jesus and the council. Jesus and the council. It's the middle of the night, which we need to just understand at the front end, uh, what's taking place, the whole thing is illegal. So among the Sanhedrin, to have a trial for a capital offense like blasphemy, something that's, uh, that would be punished by death, uh, the, the laws of the Sanhedrin would require that to take place during the day not in the secrecy of night, not in the the stealth of night. So this whole court is a sham. We should know that from the front end. And before this court proceeding, Jesus stands all while these false witnesses come, one after another, trying to pin something on Jesus that could be uh, held against him. And finally, after all these false accusations, Two people bring forward a misinterpretation of what Jesus had claimed earlier in his ministry, that he would destroy the temple and raise up the temple in three days. Now, evidence had to be established on the basis of two or more witnesses. That's why they needed more than one person to say the same thing. So when it says in the text, finally, two came forward, this is the chance that the council needed to make something stick. So they asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? So they're equating in their minds that the Christ, which is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, is the same thing as the son of God. You see that in verse 63. So Christ, son of God. And then Jesus answers in verse 64 that they're going to see the son of man. So all of these titles, Matthew is cluing us in. The the council has some understanding and Jesus is giving them more understanding. Here's the point. Jesus was way more than the council thought he claimed to be. Right? They they were thinking that Jesus is just the Messiah, that he's just the the coming uh, one of God who would conquer Israel's enemies and set up a kingdom. They thought he was some warrior king uh, in the line of David who was going to take the throne. Jesus is way, way more but they failed to see him for who he is. And instead of recognizing him as God, the son, the one who receives all authority and power from the ancient of days, that's the the verse that Jesus is quoting there, the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. That's from Daniel chapter seven. He's quoting this prophecy from Daniel saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm way more than you think. I'm way more than you think that I'm claiming to be. But the council failed to see him for who he is. And the reality is that's true for many people in our orbit today. 
I mean, there are many people in our families or among our friends or among our peers at school that deny or discredit a version of Jesus that they have in their minds that's incomplete when compared to the Son of God as revealed in Scripture. So so one of the things that maybe this could be for us as far as application is concerned is, do the ones that we know who say they don't follow Jesus, do they know Jesus? Do they know the Jesus that they're rejecting? Like, are they clear on when you say you don't believe in Jesus, what do you mean? And we as followers of Jesus who have the scriptures, who know Christ fully in the sense that he's revealed himself to us as the savior, the redeemer, the Lord of all, the son of God, the son of David, the son of man. We have an opportunity there to say, hey, look, you may reject Jesus, but can I, can I try to help you at least understand who it is that you're rejecting? The council, however, was convinced this man deserves to die. All that Jesus has prophesied up to this point, where over and over in his earthly ministry, he had prophesied to his disciples that he would die, that he would be delivered up to be crucified. All of these things were unfolding. His hour had come. So now we move from the council to Peter. Let's look at verse 69. Now Peter was standing outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself. And to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So first scene is Jesus in the council, scene two, Jesus and Peter. Jesus and Peter. Remember, Peter is watching this trial. I mean, he's there. He's present, but distant. He started off in the courtyard. He moved inside to watch the trial unfold. Now he's back in the courtyard after this condemnation of Christ has taken place. And he's approached three different times, surely in front of a crowd. We, we hear that. And he's denying Jesus. Just as it was predicted in the garden. His first denial in verse 70 takes the form of misunderstanding and confusion. He tells the servant girl, I don't, I don't know what you mean. It's not like an outright hard-nosed rejection. It's, it's an appeal to misunderstanding. It's, oh, no, 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 that's not, that's not what I mean. Like, you, no, there's, a, there's some confusion going on here. I, I don't know. You don't, you don't know what you're talking about. The second denial in verse 72 comes with an oath and a declaration. I do not know the man. 
The third and final time in verse 74 that Jesus denies, or that Peter denies Jesus, the progression continues. He doubles down on his declaration, invoking a curse on himself and swearing. I don't know the man. And when the rooster crowed, he knew Jesus was right. He had failed. He had denied his Lord three times. And his response to his failure was deep sorrow. When Peter was made aware, when he remembered the words of Jesus in light of his sin, his response was sorrow. Now, Peter, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for us. So we need to ask the question, how is this passage profitable? Like, how is this profitable for us? As we read of the one who was closest to Jesus over and over and over denying him. How's this profitable? Because like Peter, we often deny Jesus too. The reality is with our speech and with our thoughts and with our actions, we choose to distance ourselves from him. We appeal to misunderstanding. When we think that we have the boldness to step out in faith and say something strong in light of the gospel and we're met with resistance, there is a real temptation in us to back away and say, oh, no, 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 that's not what I meant. I didn't mean to offend. I didn't mean to make you come to grips with your sin. There was a miscommunication. We deny association with Christ. When we're tempted by others, when we're tempted with our own sinful hearts to go the way of death, to go the way of sin, we deny knowing Christ and run after the desires of our heart or run after the, the, the appeal and the praise of men and women in our life. And yet, when the word of Christ is remembered, we lament our denial. We're sorrowful, sorrowful over our sin. We weep over our failure. The right response to the words of Christ that exposes our sin is lament. It's sorrow. Now we're getting a bit of ahead in the story, but, but we have to know just right here in this moment, we have to know that Peter is restored like Peter comes back to Jesus. Jesus did not distance himself from Peter. And he doesn't distance himself from you. Even when your sin takes you farther than you ever dreamed of going. I can't imagine that when Peter said, hey, I don't know what you're talking about, that he thought, I'm ready to curse myself and swear so that no one knows that I know Jesus. I mean, he's not thinking that through. And when you and I run after the sinful desires of our heart, we're not thinking through it either. And yet we run. We need to see that 
Jesus didn't distance himself from Peter. And I don't mean just actions for us, like going further and further and satisfying your lusts with things like pornography or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And I don't just mean speech, like you go farther than you ever want to go when unwholesome talk evolves from a light, crude joke among friends into scathing words meant to cut down and hurt other people. I mean, underneath those things, when we believe that Jesus's words aren't true, that when we believe the scriptures are not trustworthy, And we start to believe the illusion that all those other things are better. That all those other opportunities, all those other desires are good. So we can't rightly understand this scene in Peter's life apart from knowing the end of the story when he's restored to Christ. So hear me when I say that Peter's sorrow over his sin moved him not to hide from Jesus but on Sunday morning to run to the tomb. Like Jesus, Peter's sorrow over his sin didn't lead him to just avoid Jesus and run from him and, and, and wallow in his shame and say, I can't, even, I can't even bear the thought of Jesus looking at me. No, he went to him. And when he heard that he could meet Jesus in Galilee, where do we find Peter with the other disciples waiting? And we can do the same thing. One of the gifts, one of the reasons why we've been given the gift of prayer is that you and I can go to God exactly as we are to receive forgiveness from our sins and healing for our brokenness. Peter's story stings because if we're honest, we see ourselves in the story too but it fills each one of us, I pray, with hope and wonder at the love of God that doesn't hold it against us. If we're in him, the invitation is not, hey, clean yourself up first and then come be with me. It's come as you are. You're broken by your sin, come as you are. You're lamenting your failure, come as you are. You feel shamed and embarrassed, come as you are. This, however, is not the case for Judas. So we keep going. Verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was, what was fulfilled, what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for a potter's field as the Lord directed me. 
So we move from Jesus and Peter to the third scene. That's Jesus and Judas. While Peter's sin and sorrow led to life through the loving grace of Jesus, Judas's recognition of sin was met with the soul-crushing words of self-righteous religious leaders. Look again at verse 4. Jesus, or Judas goes to the chief priest and says, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. See to it yourself. This is the lie of Satan from Genesis 3. This is the distorted bent of every sinful heart. This is the way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to death. When you and I think that we can see to it ourselves, we've gone wrong. Judas realized that the gain of the world was not going to satisfy him. 30 pieces of silver, he realized, was no reward for betrayal. It wasn't worth disobeying for, but he was left to his own strength, helpless and hopeless. And apart from Jesus and his grace, this is where every sinner will find himself or herself. The blind chief priests took the money and did something with it that made them look good. They bought a burial place for strangers. That seems like a really compassionate thing. Seems like a very kind thing, but it's rooted in wickedness. So when you see the wicked prospering, when you see those around you not following Christ, not dying to themselves, and you hear godless influences share their joy and their contentment in this world, don't fall for it. Maybe, just maybe, Pilate. We'll put a stop to this witch hunt. So let's read, starting in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. So number four, Jesus and Pilate. This is a short scene. We won't dwell on it, but here's the point. Pilate doesn't know what to do with Jesus. And he's amazed. He's confused. He doesn't know what to do. In that culture, among a Roman governor, to fail to defend yourself in court is received as an admission of guilt. So this is why Pilate is saying to Jesus, don't you have anything to say? Like, do you not hear the accusations that they're making against you? And Jesus remains silent. Jesus isn't playing the game, but Pilate is. So a non-answer for him is the same as guilt. But as we'll see in a moment, Pilate is really not so much concerned about the innocence or the guilt of Jesus. Pilate is thinking about how he can either gain or at least not lose any influence and power in Jerusalem. 
So because he doesn't know what to do with Jesus in this trial, Pilate makes a decision to use Jesus to get what he wants. And I feel like a broken record. But there are many people in our life who do the same thing. And if we're honest, we do this too. Jesus becomes a kind of trinket that we present to people that we want to like us, that we want to respect us, that we want to give us a good report, that we want their affection. We say, hey, look, I I love Jesus too. Now, won't you give me what I want? Jesus is not the Lord of your life. He's, He's like currency. He's like a tool. It's like something you use to really get what you want. Like I when I pay with my credit card for something or my debit card with something, I don't take it out and go, man, this thing is amazing. I love this thing. No, like I don't think about it at all. I just use it to get what I want. And like Pilate, there are many, many people. And there's days and moments where it's, Every one of us. I'm not thinking about Jesus at all. I'm just using him to get stuff. I'm just using him to get what I want. One more scene. We'll dwell on this one for just a moment. Where we meet Barabbas. Look at verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us. And on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So the last scene is Jesus and Barabbas. Here's the showdown. The judge over the people of Israel. the the leader from an empire that lives to oppress God's people makes them an offer. 
as he does every year, someone condemned from among you can go free. As if, as if Pilate is this model of charity and grace and compassion. And on the one hand, they have Barabbas, a notorious criminal, a murderer and a rebel against the kingdom, according to Mark's gospel. Everyone there knows this man deserves to die. And on the other hand, they have Jesus, the one who's called the Christ, the one who many believe is the son of David. Pilate recognizes in this moment that the religious leaders want Jesus dead. But perhaps the crowd might alleviate him from having to carry out an execution he knows is not legitimate. But the leaders move through the crowd, persuading them to choose Barabbas over Jesus. And I just can't help, if you're in equipping groups, I just can't help but but think about the scene in Ezra when Ezra is preaching the scriptures and the crowd is listening to Ezra and they're they're listening to him speak God's words. And they're like, we don't understand what this means. And the Levites are walking through the crowd and they're saying, Hey, do you understand what this means? You don't have to weep anymore that this is actually good news for you. There's rejoicing because God has seen fit to speak to us and he's given us a way out of our sin and a way out of our judgment. If we would just repent and follow his law and be wholly bound to him, that he would bless us. And you have this satanic inversion where in this scene you have the people that the crowds trusted most to be the bearer of God's words saying, we need to crucify him. They convinced the crowd to spare the sinner and to put his sentence on Jesus. Jesus was a blasphemer according to the crowd, according to the chief priests. And so the method of execution for a blasphemer was stoning. His his punishment should have been death by stoning. And yet the the method of execution for an insurrectionist, for a robber, for a traitor is crucifixion. So they put Barabbas' sentence on Jesus. I say, no, 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 no. Crucify him. Pilate is shocked, right? His plans have been foiled. What has this man done to deserve the worst method of death ever conceived? What evil has this man done to endure this kind of shame, this kind of dishonor among his own people? What has this man done to be inflicted so much pain? And their response is not reason but rage. Crucify him. And Pilate, don't worry, his blood's on us and on our children. So Barabbas is released. Jesus is condemned. 
And the next stop in this story will be the cross. But before we go, we have to see ourselves in this story. (laughs) What echoes can we hear? That we were guilty before God? That we deserve death? That without any action on our part, Jesus just shows up and takes our place. That we get to go free. See, in this story, we're Barabbas. We're the traitors. We're the ones who weren't scheming to be delivered, but were running headlong into destruction because of our sin. And seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus just shows up. The cross intended for us gets put on his back. The cup of wrath that was stored up for us becomes his drink. And it's even better than that. Because Jesus doesn't just pay our price. He conquers our death and then invites us after it all to come and share in his life. He wasn't roped into some kind of obligation of atonement. Like, don't miss this. Jesus doesn't go to the cross unwillingly. He doesn't go to bear your shame and your pain and your wrath and your sin because he feels obligated. He acted out of love. His sacrifice was to bring us peace. So no matter where you are or what you've done or how far you think you've run from God, he's there calling. He's there, ready to bind up your broken heart. He's there, reminding you that your sins too can be forgiven. And if you're already a Christian, like if if you believe, yeah, when Jesus was placed on that cross, my sins were placed on him too. He's still there, delighting in you as his own bride. He's there washing your wounds with the water of the word. He's there reminding you day by day that your sins have been atoned for. Your death has been defeated. Your life is now his. Your hope is now in him. Let's pray together.